Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show, and uh, so much of my show in the last five years or so has become about rhythm. Uh, it's a nonverbal way of healing, especially in the right setting when you are able to experience that vibration with cats who are willing to go and play beyond what they know and take chances and maybe fall on their face, but get back up and keep on swinging away and ultimately... Um, my elders uh, were people that uh, came up on the bandstand uh, learning from the original masters of music, and they really knew where they stood. Uh, vocabulary and music was not being made within the academy, but rather on the bandstand. And my guest today comes from an incredible lineage, uh, family lineage of music. His father was a uh, jazz trumpet player. His uncle was the legendary Claire Fisher. He went off to Chicago and just started to kick around and burn all the gigs in Chicago, uh, all the different places to play, so many different cats coming in, just a total melting pot of music, ultimately connecting with the American breed that did turn into Shaka Khan and Stevie Wonder. So many amazing hits, all through rhythm, all through love. Andre Fisher, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, Jake. It's great to be here. My man, I, you know, I just wanted you to talk about how much you were aware when you were listening to older records, whatever the genre of music was, how prevalent it was that the drummer kept time on the top of the kit and used the bass drum more for accents and rebound. Uh, first of all, that's not the way I learned. Uh, I am originally a trombone player. Uh, my emphasis wasn't on, on drums until later. Uh, the way I was taught time uh, by my father, uh, basically, was given hand drums, uh, kungas, bongos, different pieces of percussion. So before I played anything, we went through rhythm training. And also, he, would, he said he found out where, where my body groove was that meant certain tempos he knew I was comfortable with, certain rhythms he saw my facial or my physical reaction to them. So he'd, he'd, he'd start with those as far as teaching them. I, I played trumpet first, then I went to trombone because the mouthpiece used to hurt my mouth, I remember. But I, uh, I got into the, the drums later, uh, and basically because I wasn't going to take a a brand new trombone and swivel it and dance on stage with it. <laughs> so uh, you weren't going to catch me messing up my horn. But uh, I, I got into drums uh, through Al Barty, who was the drummer with Lionel Hampton. Sure. Friend of my dad's. Then I got into it more with uh, 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 Frank Butler. Uh, who's on the Kulisi Mama album with John Coltrane. I mean, Miles' Miles's favorite drummer was Frank Butler, but Frank was all junked out all the time, you know? Uh, that's why my mother had to be there when the lessons came, and I could never loan him any of my drum parts. I cannot believe that you took lessons from Frank Butler. That is the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yep. When I lived on Pico and Arlington in Los Angeles, <laughs> around, around the corner from uh, Fillmore Jr., and feel more senior, the vocal coach. I was, you know, I was, I was uh, referring more to um, just listening to records, uh, whether or not 
regardless of how you started with the hand drums and those patterns and the body groove, um, it, it's just when I when I talk to cats like George Porter, other cats too, the 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 bottom of the kit was really not that prevalent in so many of the great R and B, blues and rock jazz records. Those cats, all the cats were dancing on the top of the kit. And I guess maybe more to the point, regardless of when you started playing drums, um, you know, how did you learn to let the let your, you know, dance in your own body? I think that I remember talking to Julian Priester and uh, in Chicago when Sun Ra was doing sorority and fraternity gigs, he would just point to a soloist and they were expected to have their own internal time feel. And that allowed the rhythm section to open up melodically. And they wouldn't have to rely so much on the rhythm section. And that just came from all inner time feel. And I just, I, I was just hoping you could talk a little bit more about that body groove. Yeah, well, you... that's, but that's, to me, I was raised with my father uh, as a manager and always conducting a big band. Okay, that's exactly how each of those members function. Okay, what, if, the, if, if, the, if, the, if Count Basie had a weak drummer, it would and stop uh, the horn section from hitting where count wanted them to right okay each of those people were expected to have to have their own clocks on them okay so that's how i was raised on a chair beside a bandstand watching my father stand up in a white tux playing cherry pink on apple blossom ah, i love it god this is and then and then watching claire up at the matador in san francisco with cal jader and, and watching uh uh, Armando Praza and, and, uh, and the, the musicians that he had with them playing, you know, or George Shearing or any of the people I was exposed to by my parents. All the people my parents exposed me to were older. So I, I always had peer problems because no one knew who I was talking about. <laughs> oh, man. Wait, hold on a second. Um, your dad, what's your dad's name, by the way? Stuart Fisher. He, he, the first band Claire was in was in my dad's band. Stuart played with uh, he played with Woody Herman. He played with Stan Kenton. He played with Little John Beecher. He played with the Lee Williams Orchestra that was booked out of National Orchestra Service out of Omaha, Nebraska, from the late '40s through uh, the early '60s. He and was. Um, <clears throat> can you just talk a little bit about? Um, so he was a big band. He was in big bands, but the first small or one of the first smaller ensembles was with your dad and Claire. Claire was my dad's pianist. Claire's younger than my dad. Right. So could you talk about that first ensemble only because, I mean, the Claire Fisher, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm so impressed by your family lineage, but I mean, I have records of him with you know, trio records with Gary Peacock and Gene Stone, and it, it they hold up as well as the Bill Evans stuff that was going on on the East Coast uh, with Scotty LaFaro and Paul Motion. And I just wanted to know what kind of, was it birth of the cool music that they were playing in that small ensemble? Can you paint the picture of the kind of music that those cats were grooving on? Well, first of all, um, you got to figure some years back when my dad passed, he was 89. So they were born in, in uh, the middle 20s uh, or early uh, 1920s. So they came up playing everything. Uh, 
there are conversations about uh, Fats Waller. There are conversations about uh, Ragtime and Boogie Woogie and then into uh, Duke Ellington. So it spanned a lot. It spanned from that all the way up through Birth of the Cool and beyond. So it, it, the same thing happened to them. My grandfather was president of Barbershop Quartets of Greater Michigan. My grandmother was a choral director for four churches. My aunt Suzanne was a piano teacher and vocal teacher. My uncle Dean was a bass player. So they they had music in that house um, <laughs> forever. And my uncle Louis made violins, Etienne and Francois made one made violas, the other made cello. I mean, it, it's it's it, music was just that was the deal absolutely i mean just yeah no i mean between that and go ahead between that between that my uh i think my grandpa owned a uniform factory (laughs) they made uniforms (laughs) some shit i don't remember but uh um I, i there was always um even as a kid growing up in omaha or in minneapolis the different places I lived, you know, all the kids in the neighborhood, the parents had them taking tap lessons. Somebody was taking a lesson for something. Totally. You know? That's amazing. So I just want to be clear. You, um, what years were you in Indianapolis? Minneapolis. Minneapolis. What years were you in Minneapolis? Yeah, Mi- Minneapolis, I was born here. My mom was singing at a club called uh, the Lakeview Club out near Lake Minnetonka and her water broke. And I was born the next day. That's how I was born in Minneapolis. She was uh, gigging on stage. And while my dad was here dealing with the professor from the University of Minnesota for his composition, he was gonna take, take some classes from him to get his final credits for graduating from college. And this is after he came back from the war and from World War II where when my dad was drafted, he was in Gil Evans' big band in the Army. Oh, my gosh. And then on the same base, they had one of the the better black bands since they were separated. And my favorite picture, which I'll send you, uh, I'll I'll send it to you, is, is a large black band from the same military base. And if you look closely, there's one white guy in the trumpet section. That was my father. Uh, and I, I said, uh, that is so cool. That was his favorite picture. I said, Dad, how did you get in that band? Because, you know, they were set, they were segregated. He said, I got special permission from the base commander because that was his favorite band. He said, also, the way I got in the band is I had to play my ass off. Absolutely, he said, man. He had to play. <laughs> you would not so, be allowed. And, yeah. So that and then and then he told me. Uh, all of the conversations with Gil, and then I met Gil as a child, and him and his, I met his wife, and I met Gil, and I had conversations with him. My dad took me to meet a lot of people. I met Duke Ellington, I met Louis Armstrong, I met, uh, uh, I met uh, Pharaoh Saunders, I met uh, Lenny Tristiano, I let, met Bill Evans, I met, I met all these people, uh, uh, Billy Strayhorn, who at the time I didn't know what gay was, so he talked funny, so I asked my father if he was from England. And uh, my father said, uh, he's from another country, but he's not from here. So 
<laughs> that was his way of saying he's gay and I ain't got no comments about it. So <laughs> Well, no, I want I want you to just talk about Louis Duke, Lionel Hampton. I mean, these guys. I mean, I'm 44, and you know, like I said in my intro, uh, that word jazz, which me and you could walk down the block and ask 20 people what that word means, we get 20 different answers. But the reality is that the music and the vocabulary and the extensions of that music are now if they're being created at all are being done in the Academy, just because there aren't places to play. And that music melodic improvisation is no longer a popular music the way it was when you were born in the fifties. And I just wonder about the gracefulness. I mean, Neil Cassidy, the legendary line, grace beats karma. And those cats were the most graceful people because I've talked, I've interviewed Bill Cosby before the world caved in on him. And, and how all those cats had to go to the Howard Theater and put makeup on in the alleyways, five shows a day. Yusef Latif getting run out of Colorado so hard. Yeah. And, and yet those cats, the ones that you mentioned, you know, specifically the people, the ones of color. Can you just talk about their grace? I'm not even sure if that's the right word. I mean, line out, just talk about those cats and what was so just sort of intoxicating about them not just as players but as people you you assumed it was intoxicating <laughs> <laughs> well most of the cats i've talked to you know they uh, louis louis was just a they all they i've never heard a negative story per se but hey it's your you the floor is yours well one relationship is when you you're a youngster and they could tell you're serious about the craft that they're already proficient at. The way they treat you and what they expose to you is one thing. If you're a fan, it's another. If you're a critic, but yet you don't play, there's another. So okay. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of different scenarios as far as that's concerned. But, but a, lot of it, uh, a, a, a lot of it isn't uh, romantic. A lot of it was necessary. And as you spoke at the beginning, when you came in talking about therapy, music as therapy, people of color have used that when, when because of their own mores, not being able to go to a psychiatrist or admit the fact that they're psycho schizophrenic, like when Donny Hathaway walked out a window, uh -huh. you know, people saw the signs of it, but yet that wasn't manly to be able to refer him. Okay. So for people of color who also, when women go into the hospital, they don't even get the same amount of, of, of painkillers because for some reason there's an assumption that a black woman has a higher pain tolerance. You know, it's, it's bullshit. You know, the bottom line is, is my, my mother used to say Jackie Onassis has boogers. Everybody shit showers and shaves. Okay, so, so all of these differences are, are put there for the difference to for its unbalancing effect where the united nations didn't start in new york or, or the, the versailles new york started on a the united nations started on a bandstand when benny goodman went down south and said if you won't let lionel hampton or louis armstrong stay in the hotel with us we're not going to perform okay and it's not because he was necessarily for a uh, 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 rights of others, he just knew what he needed and what he wanted, and he wasn't going to have it any other way.
Wow. So there's all there's all there's all kinds of of uh, of, of of ways people survive, and the, the culture. In other words, how long can you pimp your sister before you have to call her a hoe? Okay. So in other words, when 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 you're selling your 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 uh, culture. And, and you know, and but yet sometimes to rationalize it, you you call it your craft. Uh -huh. it, it it's still about a, a tag on it or the politics that's played. Because I've had to play many politics. The politics of a record company make those by state government uh, 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 look very uh, simple by comparison. You, you know, as a matter of fact, the politics of a record company. I'm quite sure George Patton or Rommel would appreciate it. Absolutely, totally. But, but but the deal is, is when you're talking about humankind, you know, we're the only fools who piss in the water. Okay, so in other words, if you can't sustain that which which keeps you alive, you are an idiot. Okay, so when I when I was breaking into manhood through musicianship and through the uh, uh, to make muster was harder in my own home than it was by other musicians or any school or teacher I ever went before. Okay, so in other words, um, when people were telling me about, aren't you worried about this guy plays better than you? I said, no, I'm just, I just need my dad to say, this song I showed him I wrote yesterday is okay. Cause he would usually say, well, the difficulty factor is kind of low son. I said, dad, it's a, it's a lullaby. So anyway, <laughs> You know, so I, I had a different set of standards to go through, and I've been taught, and my parents showed me that no institution was ever held responsible for the teaching of their children or complaining about a teacher or a school system. They said, that's our job. He said, school's nothing but a hip daycare center. Okay, so I, I, I've come up a different way. So my, my view doesn't fit. It works because I'm still alive. Okay, but as far as musicians were concerned, what what uh, uh, what got me about a lot of them, it it's just it's content, it's good content. Uh, uh, Les McCann or I remember Paul Humphreys, a lot of folks telling me a long time ago, they said all the young people that talk to us, you know, if we've been successful, they want to know the system with which we work within. In other words, what's the game? Okay, they're not asking me about content. They're asking me about game. And all the people that came to me for a music business classes at the college I was the dean at, and some of the other places where I've taught and lectured, everyone's so worried about the game, and but yet they will go attempt to play the game with no fucking content, with bullshit. Damn. Okay? And the only thing, the only thing that kept me, my friends like Stevie Wonder or Ray Parker or, or uh, all the folks that I came up with in Lionel Richie, all those folks was content. In other words, that you're communicating something that other people understand. In other words, you don't pay money to go see a band you don't get. You don't pay money a hundred bucks to go see a concert and you don't know what the fuck they're doing on stage. No, there, there's a thread that connects us, okay? And so what I see a lot of people doing is just coveting the thread, you know? And, and that's 
communicating. And, and that's what a lot of it is. Same with vocalists. I've only worked with vocalists, most of the records I've produced, you know, that I've been successful with. And, and that's because they're storytellers. And my mom was a singer and a storyteller. So in other words, my first point of reference to music was this father who arranged and played with big bands, you know, and an uncle whose composition skills, even when he was humming, were fantastic. And a mother who, who sang was a mother, was maternal, and could riff her ass off and would make me play brushes on a magazine while she did the dishes and sang. Okay, so those experiences, those aren't ones you find in school, and those aren't ones everyone you interview is going to say that that happened. They'll say something else happened. You know, so all of those put together, and the fact that you realize that man is an idiot at times, uh, sometimes music saves your life. Because what it takes is, is your, uh, it takes 100% of you. But when you're good to it, it takes care of you. I don't mean financially, but, but sometimes emotionally or spiritually. Absolutely. And also to do, a, to do good music that makes you feel good. Don't let me get into the science of vibrations, you know. And, Dude, and, you can go there, baby, because it's been healing me, man, like no other. Well, you know, it, it definitely. Uh, um, that's why I could tell uh, from which Frank Zappa mixes were mixed on cocaine. Okay, because it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's all high-end shit, okay? And where low-end stuff affects the body. And uh, yeah. oh, people, 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 people of color tend to listen to things that are a little bit more earthbound uh, on the one. Uh, but there's always, there's always uh, uh, exceptions to that. You know, after traveling, you know, to to all parts of South America and, and Asia and just all over the place, or watching some uh, uh, East Indian or some uh, uh, musicians from Pakistan kick ass. Okay, so the, like I was saying before, the United Nations started on a bandstand. So that became like a, a, a place to dwell, a place to covet. And not only that, but when you traveled, you know, the, being a road dog, um, the, the, you had other you had other brethren out there who understood what you were going through and you you compared notes and the performances weren't like a competition it only became competition when when people were 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 judging you and part of the judgment decided whether you you could make a dollar off of it or not when it, when when it, something becomes your subsistence that's how you survive your view of it is different than, than that of just, you're gonna do it anyway. So the people I tend to hang around and that I gravitated towards, it's just like Stevie. It, it doesn't matter if Stevie had ever been paid. Stevie will play because that's part of his existence. For me, music is part of my existence and it's helped save my life. Uh, it's, it's also put kids through college, you know, and um, you know, bought a couple of nice rugs and some amois, okay? <laughs> But, but well, let me ask you, I want to go about, I just want to talk to you about this um, and get your reaction to it just because go going back to this idea of, because I think it's an incredibly salient point about Paul Humphreys, like arguably like one of my favorite drummers of all time, Frank Butler, again, say what you will, the guy was just playing his ass off. But um, 
you talk about this knowing the system versus content and um you know mingus called his music mingus music and max roach would go to blows if you called his music jazz and i just to me like that word big black i don't know if you ever crossed paths with with him the, the i was moment. in the i was in the play big time buck white for oh Oscar my Brown. no you were not dude was i was the i was the drummer in the pit band with fillmore jr and then after phil it was merle saunders oh um, dude you're you're brit you're making my day dude wait was that it was uh was Chuck Rainey in that, or was that on the East Coast or the West Coast? I'm trying to that figure was, that. That was East Coast. West Coast was the was the New Committee Theater on Pacific in San Francisco. Oh my, dude, this is down from down the block from Basin Street West. So Black told me, you know, basic. So was Black in that band? By the way, was he in the Pit Band? Black was not in the band. He was big time Buck White. Oh my, dude. Andre Fisher going to Never Everland on me right now. So and, also, and that same <laughs> that same play was Ted Ross who played the Lion and the Wiz. Totally, totally, dude. No, because I've interviewed. Yeah, I interviewed Merle's uh, couple, his son, and he broke that down. And Chuck and I. So this was Phil Moore Jr. Was the, but the point is that Black told me that that it was the word. The word was jazz. J a s s. You'd go to the brothel. Somebody was playing boogie woogie. And there was this house of ill repute. And then all of a sudden, white journalists like myself came along and was like, wow, these are geniuses and this stuff can be commodified. Let's drop the S's and call and put some Z's on it. I just wonder about your dad and Claire. I know they were in it, but did they did they come from the Duke Ellington school that it's all music and were labels even anywhere? Like, how did you refer to music? Because now... It, it there's so much branding there's so much you know you have to fit into some kind of box and before it was so beautiful because someone like paul humphreys he'd be swinging with lawrence welk and then uh maxine weldon and then charles Kennard. so just where did you come where did your fo- with dad and claire and your family come down on labeling the music they didn't it was because they create music Right. The labeling of music is not usually always done by the creator. Hmm. Okay? Ask, ask Stevie what he calls his music. <laughs> okay? He'll, he, he'll look at you funny and you'll think he can see. <laughs> right. I dig. I dig. Okay? Yeah. It, was, it was based upon that motherfucker doesn't know how to play or gosh, that was great. Or she's flat. You know, because I remember getting ready to go produce Tony Bennett. And my father said, I know you like Tony, but it's, he said, that's from a memory from high school about uh, Left My Heart in San Francisco. He said, your, your job is to tell him when he sings flat. So stop being so fucking enamored. Wow. He said, your, your job is, is, to, is to put shit right. He said, so, so go do your job. And that's dude, what your I dad went. was a badass man. I mean, that dude, the bar was so high. Well, but he, they, wound up, yeah. he wound up making the music department at a place called College of the Canyons in Valencia, California. Wow. And he, he had the big band program there for over 25, 26 years after being on the road from, uh, from late 40s all the way up through, let's say, early 60s. I... Um... Do you remember, like, 
can you just talk a little bit about like the first, you know, I guess the first kind of drum kit you had? I mean, was it during the Frank Butler years? When did you actually get? And was it a modified kit or was it a full kit? Um, the first kit was from a pawn shop. It was a marching size bass drum that I drill holes and put spurs in. Uh, the bass drum pedal was a ghost pedal, also bought from a pawn shop. And then I had to find someone who knew what those were to help me uh, adjust it and fix it. Um, I got some old beat up cymbal stands. I got a, a Slingerland snare, uh, actually an old WFL snare too. Uh, a, a really rickety hi-hat and uh, some use uh, uh, Zildjian, some Zildjian cymbals. I got a couple cymbals from Verna Barlow, um, uh, was a drummer, and I got some, oh. I got one cymbal from, from Clarence Johnston. Yes. And, and I got one from uh, Clarence Johnson taught Raymond Pounds. The, the drummer how to Raymond my dear to, friend man, dude what I cannot dude Clarence Johnston man that dude was yeah. wow unbelievable so he was a it was sort of a it was you put it all together but there it was Andre Fisher's first kit there it was what what year was that uh let's see uh ninth uh, end of the eighth grade, ninth grade. And you were still in Minnesota at that point, or were you, where were you at? No, I went to John Burroughs Junior High and graduated from L.A. High. So talk in a little, yeah, no, this is important. Like once you, uh, before Chicago, can you talk about? Uh, left, Min you left Minnesota, left Minnesota at the end of the fourth grade. Went to California because Claire moved there and he had my brother come live, live with him there and they sent for us. <clears throat> Do you, did you, were you able to play uh, or go down to memory lane or the it club? I'm just curious about some of the, some of the early. My mother, my mother, my mother sang at the it club. Wow. I remember seeing Dinah Washington there and the black orchid and the Rubiot quite a few places. Uh, in memory lane uh, before Marla Gibbs bought it. I remember seeing West Montgomery at memory lane and they locked the doors because they stayed open after hours. And, uh, and West Montgomery had just played the shrine auditorium. And after the shrine, he went and did a set at memory lane. The people loved him so much. They just locked the doors and he played till around four in the morning. Oh, I love this so much. Dude. And people, people, people didn't even sit in the chairs. They all sat on the floor. They sat at his feet and monk is uh, monk was on piano. His brother, he had, I forget the rest of the band, but it was his, whoever toured with him. And I remember, uh, that's also at the same time, my dad was uh, introducing me to uh, uh, Don Sebesky. I remember I met uh, uh, going to Claire sessions at the old uh, NBC studios, which used to be right there on the corner across from Wallach's Music City, where Home Savings wound up there in Los Angeles. Uh, there was a big recording studio there, and TT&G, and Gold Star, 
and all these different places I got drugged to by my uh, uncle and by my dad. Matter of fact, when my uncle got drafted into the military, they drafted him to West Point as assistant choral director. And after he got out of West Point, when he got out, that's when he went with the high lows and started arranging, being their band director and the, the music director and then uh, producing records on them. So it's, it's like all those situations my people took me to. You know, I, I went to recording studios. It's like, you know, I did homework in the studio. Absolutely. No, I'm, because right. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't unheard of for cats. <laughs> I mean, I'm a Jamal joined the union at 10 years old. Were you, did you join the union when you were still in Los Angeles? I was, uh, I was in the sixth grade when I joined the musicians union. That is unreal. And so can I, you just, I was born to, I was going to 37th street school. <laughs> I mean, like can you talk about i mean mid 60s um you know you had uh all these great live clubs were you do you remember some of the early sessions were you doing suds and duds were you just doing demos i just am curious about um you you you, know. you, you don't do specifics you do anything you can it's it you, you don't say well i'm just going to do that today you know when you're young you want to do everything and can you, uh, can you talk about a, yeah i would love you to talk about some of those like there, i mean could, there, was a, could, there was a theater on uh on adams and crenshaw it was called the kabuki theater oh boy. it was the japanese movies but after hours it was called the adams west theater and after hours on the weekend that's where i saw miles davis and yusuf latif and uh and and all of these other artists and matter of fact at the time my mother at on occasion would sing in Les McCann's choral choir. And that's also when Les was, was playing with uh, Lou Rawls and Lou Rawls was being featured with Les McCann. Uh, and that, that during those periods of time, that's when I was hanging out with uh, Paul Humphrey. You're making, <clears throat> you're touching my heart, man. Cause uh, I know we're just getting connected, but um, I want to read this story to you. Uh, uh, it was from, from this is from uh, my interview with Steve Kahn, and uh, but he's talking about my dear brother and uncle, rest in peace, Clarence McDonald. I just want to read this to you, and then you can riff on. Oh it. Jesus, Clarence! Oh, I, I'm yeah. still not, I'm still not over that yet. I, I, I the man, I, 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 I was, I, I, he just, I don't even have words for it. But let me, let me read this to you, and then you can riff on it. He said, please, please. Yeah, he said Clarence, uh, he was. Steve Kahn saying, I was just a happy kid from California. I didn't know anything. Clarence at the time had been working with the Friends of Distinction. Somehow I ended up getting the gig with that band. One day we're rehearsing for something and a keyboard player, Phil Moore Jr., called Clarence about a recording that was coming up. I was noodling in the background and Phil said, well, who's that? Clarence said, it's this kid, Steve Kahn. He said, tell that kid I want him to play on my record next week. Of course, Clarence tells me, and I say, you're joking, right? Next thing I know, I'm going to a rehearsal with Phil Moore and Clarence, Sticks Hooper playing drums, and Wilton Felders playing Fender bass. I was in shock the whole time because I idolized the Jazz Crusaders. To be sitting in the same room as Wilton and Sticks was insane. On the album Right On, Phil Moore album, Andre Fisher played drums on some tracks. 
can you talk about right i mean first of all there's just so much there but was that maybe the first record you were on no okay uh, I, I played on a bunch of records and demos um there was a couple uh, uh ted brunson there was a couple people who had little demo studios and uh also certain rhythm sections there's a group called the young hearts uh, which was an R&B group, kind of like the Tony Dumas, man. Yeah, the Young Hearts were were kind of like the Whispers, and uh, um, that kind of group, R&B group. So it, the recording was actually more R&B and not that much jazz. Actually, the jazz was more live, uh, live situations. Or I remember um, who's the guy who made God didn't make little green apples. It, it, it don't rain in Oklahoma in the summertime. Oh, well, O.C. Smith. Oh, my, his church, man. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I used to play behind O.C. Smith uh, with with Jack Wilson when when uh, when Verna Barlow, uh, the drummer, uh, would call Fillmore Jr. because he got, uh, uh, I think, arrested for a DUI. And he called from jail to Phil's house. And Phil was my neighbor from around the corner on Pico and Arlington near the miniature golf course. And uh, uh, I would come over to Phil's house. He built a studio in his garage. And that's when I met his father, Fillmore Sr. And then all these musicians would come through. And plus some I already knew because of my parents, but then Phil introduced me to a ton of other people. That's also why after touring for a while, when I came back in town, Phil was looking for me. And that's when he took me to San Francisco with him to, to meet with Oscar Brown and start with big time Buck White. But anyway, let me I do, back. This is, you are blowing. Wait, wait, this is on. So when you're talking to me. Um, Phil, Phil was Phil was my neighbor. Yeah, right, right, right. And, and I would slept for him and also when he had an idea and needed someone to play the drums, I, he'd grab me and, and I'd keep a beat or do whatever I had to do so he could get his idea. Uh, that's when I did that uh, nappy head with him. And that's when uh, um, uh, there was, uh, uh, Neswe Erdogan came out. Uh, and that's when I met Neswe. And uh, I remember also by the time I got to uh, the 11th grade, I also um, did a little interning one summer for Jerry Wexler in New York and going by the Atlantic offices. Wow. And uh, uh, man, <laughs> I'm, I'm 74. So in other words, there's a lot of shit. I forgot more than people know. Well, no, but I want to be very clear. <clears throat> Part of my show, I mean, after 1800 interviews, it's important to because I, I, I have this ability to sort of dig deep into this bag of of your career and pull stuff out. And to be honest with you, I mean, to know that you were, I mean, the all music guide, which is hardly the Holy grail. Um, it doesn't really say that you started your recording career until you got to Chicago with Eddie Harris. And um, I'll be, right. Yeah. So, so I, I'm talking like, this is very important to go back. And I'm just curious, like was, was, uh, was like Leroy Vinegar coming to Phil's house? Was Lawrence Maribald? I mean, who who were some of the cats that you got hip to when you started to hang with with Phil? Well, you got to remember, my mother was a singer too. Uh, mm -hmm. Buster Buster Williams used to play with her. 
because he was with the Jazz Crusaders for a while. That's unbelievable. Buster Williams was with the Crusaders? If you listen to those Lighthouse albums from 67, 68, he's on those albums, and and Wilton's playing tenor. Anyway, that's on. I cannot believe Buster was playing bass with your mom. I used to do jingles with, with Joe Sample and Wilton. At the oh at God. the Jackson at the Jackson's Fives house on Havenhurst out in the valley, <laughs> for, for the child for the Charles Stern ad agency and Fillmore Jr. was on piano. He, I, he'd I'm, be piano yeah. and and Joe and Joe would play organ, or one would play acoustic, one would play rose, and Wilton would play bass. He didn't play sax. Well, I I luckily interviewed Wilton. Some Jewish bar owner gave him a, a bass and. Within a few months, he was like the first call bass player in Los Angeles. What years did you, so the Jackson five, what years were those like late sixties you say, or maybe right around the 70? Mm, no, because 70, I was in Chicago. Right. This was, this had to be late, uh, this had to be late sixties. I'm and just curious. Because I, I graduated high school in 67. At that point, and also um, I, went, I went to high school with Jessica Cleves from Friends of Distinction. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, no, uh, Lamont Lamonte Mclemore, a dear, what a beautiful cat that guy is, man. Um, I, I mean, is it fair to say that um, you had already were you getting calls to so so I, I I don't remember the bar the Barlow cat. I'm not familiar with him. He'd wind up in jail. You'd get calls for those gigs. By the time you graduated high school, but those or, those those specific gigs were with uh, with OC Smith, and it was playing at the Pied Piper up on Crenshaw. Oh, I love this dude. This is so classic. And yeah, the, yeah. The, the, and the pianist was uh, Jack Wilson. Jack, dude, I just flashed on him the other day because the I've been listening to this Roy Ayers record, and I remember Roy Ayers, one of the first cats he played with as a sideband was was uh jack wilson which is he was such a great player man but the uh, and, and, and then there was lewis large played bass uh lewis spears played bass with phil sometimes uh then there was buster there was a, there was a bunch of different people what did you were you getting calls like um uh at that point um to fill in for Paul Humphrey ever like at the I mean did you ever have a chance to who else like what I guess here's the better question when you graduated in 67 um you really you kind of really was uh, my point is that a lot of cats that I've talked to have had a lot of humbling experiences on the bandstand getting kicked off the bandstand I'm talking about Famadou Don Moy from the Arts Ensemble of Chicago or Denny well, because, Seiler. Because they couldn't keep the tempo up on giant steps. That's right. No, you're darn right. But your dad already set the bar so high. What was like one thing from a musicality point of view that you still needed to shed on once you graduated high school? Or were you already kind of oblivious to the noise and you were just cooking the groove? You're never oblivious to the noise because you, you it's it's in close proximity. Yes. Okay, so in other words, you learn that when you get older. When you're younger, everything affects you and, until you don't let it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, so in, the, in other words, the difference between 
being mad or being emotional. You know, there's a difference between the two. So the deal is, is by the time I graduated high school, I was already gigging on weekends, going to other places in other states. Okay, I, I started touring and, and gigging at 14. In the 11th and 12th grade, I used to sleep on the pillows at Maverick's Flat and be late for school the next day because I'd be practicing with a guy named Hillard Streets. And at Maverick's Flat at the time, uh, Tony Maiden was playing guitar with a, a group called the Rainbows, which was huh. these three girls. And those bands and the musicians with Manuel Kellogg on drums too, he wound up playing with the Graham Central Station. These, we played behind all the acts that came through Mavericks, or we'd be there to witness them. And which was everybody from Billy Preston to Ike and Tina Turner, to a lot of groups came through there. And then the, the groups that were put together by the Daniels brothers who own Mavericks, was uh, uh, Love Machine, and uh, there was another band that they would send out to Europe that would come back. And then at the, the, the time that was happening, the Whiskey had a great R&B band uh, with Tank and Preston Love were running this band up at the Whiskey. That's when black people didn't go up on Sunset, okay? They'd have the Temptations at the Whiskey and it would be an all white audience. And uh, uh, matter of fact, that's when Baldwin Hills and Lombard Park, there weren't any black people there then. So this was before white flight. And then what happens is, is we'd go to the whiskey, we'd go to all the different places, any after hours place, any club, any place where there was music, music musicians would wind up there. Uh, we'd go to Bonesville, we'd go to Shelley's Manhole, we go to the summit, which was up on Stocker off Crenshaw, up at the top of the hill was a jazz club. Um, the Pied Piper, oh um, my God. The, the It Club. Uh, I, I, I saw everyone. I saw Miles the night that uh, after he played at the Adams West, which I said was the Kabuki Theater down yeah, off of Adams. That's right. My mother and I are out in the back and we're talking to people, the gig's over. Miles gets in a fight over a 19-year-old girl and, and her boyfriend. He gets hit in the lip and cancels his concert for Royce Hall the next day. Okay, this, this is shit I'm made privy to. <laughs> oh, so, wait, um, I, I want to just get something on the table, Andre. <clears throat> um, do you have... Uh, are you... Do you have... Is your part of your heritage from the motherland of Africa? What do you mean, my parents? I'm saying you you have lighter skin, but you were would your would, would you say that you are descendants from the motherland? My 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 mother is is African American. My my father is white. Right. So based on the fact that that um, so you often I mean Gary Bartz would talk to me about you know they'd walk into a department store and they'd hassle his mom more than him because his mom had darker skin than him. But going back to like, that, I went through that too. Can you, I mean, that to me is like, cause I mean, you were, I mean, you're one of the, you're one of the cats. And, and so, um, yeah, but my but, parents, my parents got a hold of that. They told me up front, they said, black kids won't relate to you because they'll think you think you're better because you're light skinned. And white kids won't know what to do because you don't play basketball and you don't act like a typical black child. 
<laughs> Dude, so how did you deal? I mean, tell me a little bit. So once they gave you that, this is so amazing because the truth is, yeah, you know, but that's that's called parents raise a warrior. That's I did no, I all. dig, bro. I dig it, man. Go ahead, continue. In other, in other words, you you have to you have to make your child worldly. If you're only neighborhoodly, then the shit in the neighborhood will always fuck with you. Okay, you have you have to go beyond the scope of that, and that's the only reason I've been able to survive and live in other countries and do other things because my mind is not in one place musically or physically you it's like you have to astral travel before you know how to fucking do it <laughs> you know be, just because the world's fucked up or somebody doesn't like you what the fuck are you supposed to do you got to get on with it absolutely my, my father said i told him one day i said uh you know the fucking light at the end of the tunnel he said don't ever say that shit to me <laughs> he said if, if you're looking for the light at the he said, the light at the end of the tunnel, some other motherfuckers got a torch. He said, you got to bring your own torch. Oh, I love this. Dude, said, I, would, I would love to have hung with your dad, man. What? He said, when, he, said, when you, he said, when you show up, when you walk in the door, light comes in. And he said, the only reason why you're enamored with everybody is because you haven't been in the room after you've left. Sometimes it gets dark in there. Mm-hmm. He said, sometimes you're the one bringing the light. And don't forget it. Your job is to bring a torch. I said, yes, sir. And I've been doing it ever since. You know, it's, Andre, it's, it is so beautiful to hear this. I mean, it's, it's not it's not confidence. It's the reality of survival. It's the reality. Right, it's reality. Right. And, and, and amongst that survival and all of the other bullshit going on to have any sense of, of, of humanity or something that you can use of th- therapy other than sticking a needle in your arm or drinking some shit. It, it's it's music it's vibration it's to know that that's available to you but not only that the day you understand you're a creator in other words you communicate that's what you do and that's how you exist so in other words i exist with music it's part of my life so in other words it's not this separate thing that i talk about or i shine up and put up on a shelf and i take it down when i need to wear it as a red badge of courage it's part of my dna and just because I got all these parents didn't guarantee I was going to become a musician because my sister and brother didn't. Okay, so it wasn't that. It has to be something about it that appeals to you. And as far as recording was concerned, you know, the majority of productions, you know, even my ex-wife with Natalie after producing Unforgettable and Tony Bennett and all these other people, no one has ever called me to come do anything. You're talking to the person who made the call and convinced them, let me try to do that for you. That's the way I've existed. No one's calls me for anything. Only time they call me is if something's broke and can I fix it? I, I love, dude, you bring your torch. I, I mean, I really think being proactive, not waiting around for the phone to ring, ultimately, you have to be extremely. Um, I, I just, I have to ask you this question before it leaves my mind. You know, part of me, uh, when I go see live music, especially my peers, uh, I have, uh, sometimes on a really good night, I have what you, I'm sure you're familiar with called descarga, which is the spiritual discharge from your brain, from the rhythm. Uh And I, I want you to talk about, um, 
going to the El Matador and seeing seeing whether you saw Willie Bobo or Mondo Peraza with, with Claire and Cal Jader, that Cal Jader put me on my path 12 years ago when I started this journey. I wound up connecting. I interviewed all these cats in the band. Obviously, your uncle was, was passed away at that point, but uh, eventually got to his daughter and she got me to Dave Brubeck. But the point is, I mean, Cal would have to fight for for Mongo and Willie Bobo to get equal pay. Regardless, that was that was Descarga personified. I was wondering if you could talk about like a spiritual experience you have, considering you already had been playing uh, hand drums quite a bit from your father. Well, in other words, it's almost like the old saying: if you know, if, if you can dance to it, you can play it. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you know, right now, you know, it's like it, when, when, I, when I used to dance with one of my ex-wives, she says, why, why are you always humming when we dance? <laughs> <laughs> I love it, dude. Well, if you solo my drum tracks on any of the recordings I've done, if you solo them and turn them up, you'll hear me humming. I'm, I'm humming the song. I'm, I, I play the song. And that's that's why musicians would call me. That's why I played in groups because it felt good. It felt good to them because it felt that I was playing the song. I wasn't playing time and just a fill. I was playing the melody. I was playing the song. You know, I used to watch a drummer named Albino Jerry. He was from Cleveland. He played behind the OJs when there was five of them. And I was in I was in the house band of the Bottoms Up Club in Columbus, Ohio. It was one of my road gigs that I decided no longer to keep touring with whoever I was touring with. And a house band of a club uh, hired me there in Columbus, Ohio, after a performance I'd done to be in the house band. The guy who hired me was J.C. Davis, the sax player on Please, Please, Please from James Brown. Sure. Okay, he had the house the best house band uh, in Columbus was at the Bottoms Up Club. I wound up as the drummer. And the first person we backed up was Solomon Burke. And then Mabel John, uh, little Willie John's uh, uh, sister, who was also one of the Raylettes. And then uh, Ed and James came through. In other words, every act that came through town, we backed it up. And that's when I saw the OJs. And they came in with their own rhythm section. And they had a drummer that he was, not only was he in jazz, but he was in R&B. He would accent the dance moves without losing a beat. And that's also, too, what a lot of Count Basie and the earlier music people called jazz, basically white people. It, to black people, it wasn't jazz. It was dance music. That's right. Okay, so, uh, you know, jazz was when there was a little bit more improvisation. And not only that, but the people we respected the most as musicians wasn't a guy who just came out and played any random note he felt like. It usually was somebody that knew his basic foundation was just like ours, where we'd studied everything from classical to big band. You know, and when you're learning music as a kid in school, basically most of it's classical or it's marching band music. That's right, totally. Okay, so in other words, fundamentals are fundamentals. It, it, it deviates when you've decided that's what you want to do or it becomes part of your expression, that's when you start getting specific. But it's just like a record producer. If all I can produce, it's like when I did Unforgettable and, and it won all those damn Grammys, the only calls I would get was somebody who wanted to produce dead people. 
You know, can you can you grab can you grab this voice and put it with their son? And I'm like, you know what? I've done it already. Okay, so I, I have to do other things. I remember I was doing Brenda Russell's records, and um, I did uh, something called Piano in the Dark, and then I did a bunch of other stuff. But but I I get with Brenda, and and they say, well, every time we hear the songs you do with Brenda, they sound so stylized. And then when she gets with other producers, it it sounds typical that's one of the words that we yeah a formula formulaic yeah yeah Yeah. but the but the deal is is i'm a drummer she's a piano player plus i play trombone so in other words i'm aware of melody as well as rhythm okay so she's left-handed okay which most piano players who are right-handed they're stressing the chord in the right hand the left hand sometimes becomes an incidental where the bass is not always as defined as say a bass player's uh, bass notes would be. So I said, in order to stylize Brenda's songs, I made the bass player play her left hand because I put things in the track that could make her stand up. Because just like Roberta Flack, when Roberta Flack plays piano, she's giving herself everything she needs. So how are you gonna get her to stand up in front of a microphone? The only way to do that and have them comfortable is you put the elements of of their style that they need in the track from other instruments and other musicians. So I stylized Brenda's tracks based upon the way she plays and sings. Her cadence is based upon the way she plays. Okay, so in other words, the only way I know that is I have to listen. All right, so I listened to that and that's how I put the records together. So every time Brenda and I would get together, People would like a record, and we, as they say in the business, we did business. <laughs> as, as soon as she went somewhere else, and uh, some somebody esoteric comes along, and they think they know Brenda, it, it just wasn't the same. And what it is is it 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 doesn't. There's other special people just like me, but the point is, there's only one of each of us. So sometimes you you will lose a band member. And some parts of it may stay the same, but something slightly changes. Just like when Danny Serafini left Chicago. Okay, there's a way that he played that they were used to and when they hit those accents together. And then it got slicker when he left, but it didn't necessarily get better. It just got different. You're nailing it. I mean, did you, before, did you, did you go to the Dragon Wick Club to see Bobby Hutcherson and Charles Lloyd? What in in San Francisco? No, this Dragonwick Club was. It's, it's just uh, this is really interesting because uh, did you have you ever hung with uh, Jim Keltner before the drummer? Jim Keltner on the Rufus album, uh, when my left wrist was broken, he played on a song called "Dance with Me." For me. Oh my god! So 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 this is the greatest. I mean, you if you know this already, that's fantastic. I just want to say one of the things that touched my heart so much about. It, having a chance to interview you is that <clears throat> I, love, I love, I love Jim Kiltner, man. Well, no, Kel- so this is pretty amazing and it might be, this might be brand news to you, but if it is, I'm very proud because Keltner would like to kind of forget about the fact that he was a complete jazz snob in the sixties. He used to go and see Bobby Hutcherson and Charles Lloyd play. And they used to spend time and talk to him. And eventually Keltner and Albert Stinson, they'd be on the bandstand trying to pretend to be Philly Joe and Paul Chambers, this, that. 
1969, and I emailed, I, I mailed the only copy of the record I had to Jim on a label called Progressive. Uh -huh. uh, Claire Fisher album with Bobby West on bass, uh, Gary Foster on horn, and Jim Keltner playing drums. It is out of control, burning post-bop jazz. It's oh, on, shit. It's on, I, dude, I'm telling you, I'll, I'll send you a link to the record. It touched my heart. I was like, Claire, is his spirit is here, man. And Jim cannot stand listening to himself. They play like an 18-minute tune. It is, and it's before he really veered off and became the studio cat that we all know. It was just so incredible that, that, that he was in the studio with Claire cooking the groove with Bobby West trying his best to play jazz. It was just, it was beautiful, man. It's just, it's, it's, it just, it, it's, it speaks to, you know, I, we're going to have, we, I don't even want to get into, can we do set two, man? Like this week sometime? Cause yeah, I don't even, Hell yeah, man. Yeah, if you, I, oh, Jim, man, uh, the, the thing about Jim to me is that he, I, I never knew how old he was. He's ageless. It, dude, I talk to him all the time and he continues, and he doesn't have it easy either, man. We all are bringing that torch. But he's ageless, man. And just the fact that he played while you were nursing a broken wrist on that is just it, – it's. and then the, the Claire Fisher connection is always there. I'm going to send you a link to this album because you have to find a way to get a hold of it because it's the only – one of the only albums I've ever heard Keltner attempting to play jazz. It's yeah, honoring. Well, I'll, I'll call my cousin Brent. I'll call Claire's son. Absolutely, dude. I'll see if he has a – because Brent's got a lot of shit. In other words, all the old Rufus arrangements my uncle did, or even Robert Palmer, and all that stuff, the original onion skins and some of the the uh, the composition sheets are, are, are logged over at my uncle's house. Wow. And my, my, my cousin Brent lives in my uncle's house. So let's, I'll get with you. Let's try to, let's try to knock out another set this week. I, we haven't even gotten to Chicago yet. Cause I, we got to talk about, <laughs> Walt, we, we got to talk about, we got to talk about, uh, uh, my man. Uh, I'm not sure if you cross, do you, you know, Ross Salamone? Fuck do I, of course I know Ross. He's a dear friend. So what I'm saying is like, you know, I mean, dude, I, Ross, I've been, I'm, yeah. I remember when Ross went on his diet and he wore sweat clothes and he, Drove up and down hills to lose weight. Oh God! Yeah, no, he just called himself a porky Italian guy, and but there, <laughs> I love there, Russ, there he was at the Pussycat watching Billy Hart with Jimmy Smith. You know, so we got a lot more to get into. Uh, and we'll, I, I, yeah. I got stories. I got stories from Brunswick. That's when I first met Bruce Wadeen in Chicago. Oh my God! No, and also, I mean, I, I'm like, I'm like, I, I just have to feel. I mean, first of all, a guy who I talked to his wife. There's so much flooding through me, but a few years ago, uh, the, the the most the the stone genius. I mean, Stevie Wonder probably is the ultimate. But if there was a second tier, the next cat was Richard Evans, man. Um, that's who, excuse me, Jake. That's my production teacher. I, 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 in, I know, I know. I, I lived in Rich, I lived in Richard's fucking basement. I and called his wife. Yeah, his, he, he was not in great. She was very sick. I didn't have a chance to interview him, and he passed away. Just the man is just – he's. I knew I knew you guys were were, were very close. It, it, so we'll, we'll oh spend, we'll spend a whole that. we'll spend a whole hour on that cat, man. I, I love that man, and that's who introduced me to Ahmed Jamal. That's who introduced me to Bruce Wadeen. That's who, that's who introduced me uh, to Jerry Butler, okay? Richard, I, I think I was like his younger brother. 
he made me do shit. He took me places. He exposed me to everything. And and then and then I hung out, uh, and me and Donny Hathaway would break our necks trying to see who's going to get coffee for Charles Stephanie. Dude, I don't even want to go there right now. We uh, I've got to save this immediately. I, I need all the information because, of course, okay, big, Dick. yeah, yeah, we'll be in touch, Andre. So good to hear you, man. Oh, dude, dude, you just I, I, I just call me Potpourri, man. <laughs> yeah, man, we're having a ball, dude. And uh, if, you know, listen, I'll, 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 if you want Keltner's number, I'll send it to you. You can give him a call, dude. You should call. Hey, dude, well, I'm getting ready to call Steve today too. So thank you for that. All right, man. Yo, be cool, bro. Much love to you, man. Oh, uh, Jake, get down, man. Take care of yourself. All right, man. baby. Be cool. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.